And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. If you don't have your Bibles, passage will be in your bulletin and on the wall. Hebrews chapter 11, sometimes called the Hall of Faith, has been filled with these characters that the author of Hebrews is using as points of reference for these Christians to whom he's writing this sermon letter who are thinking about abandoning their faith, who are thinking about leaving the church because it's become difficult. It's become hard to be a Christian. And as they think about maybe abandoning their faith, their author of Hebrews is preaching the gospel, underscoring for them that the worst thing they could do would to be abandon the hope that they have in Jesus, who is the only hope for a sinful world. And so in chapter 11, he's gone person by person, character by character, episode by episode, reaching back into the book of Genesis, the book of origins of our faith, And he's telling, in not too many words, reasons why they are evidence that we can and should persist in the faith. That we should persevere in our faith. And this morning, we have but a single verse as we're introduced to the person of Joseph, the last of the patriarchs. And that single verse of all the things that could be said about Joseph... This is what he says. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. What in the world does this mean? And why is this given to us as encouragement? Let's pray that God would help us understand His Word. Lord, would You take Your Word and now put it to work in our hearts by communicating to our ears and applying to our lives what it is to have faith in You as the promise maker and that You are protecting and fulfilling all of your promises in Christ Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. I've said it um, once or twice before, and I'll say it once or twice more. The theme of the Holy Bible is this holy promise that God has made to redeem a people for Himself. That God has made promises... And He is fulfilling those promises. He is keeping those promises. And that is our greatest hope. And it's really all that we need to know is true. God is the great promise maker. God is the great promise keeper. And we've seen the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 as he's gone person by person, character by character, episode by episode. He has shown that that promise that we keep referencing That promise was made to Abraham. And then God preserved that promise with Noah by tucking him in, by shutting him in the ark, 
He preserved that promise in that seed line that he was going to bring redemption into the earth. Then for two weeks, we saw that God passed that promise on through Isaac and through Jacob. And now this morning, it's going to be a lesson in how God protects his promise. He is seeing this through. He is up to something, or as you've heard me say many times, that God is at work. He is doing something very specific, and He's told us what it is as the story unfolds. So, remember the overarching, continuous theme and context of the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. All of its stories, all of its characters, from Genesis to Revelation... It's the story of the covenant. It's the story of God's promise. How He has made an eternal promise to redeem the seed of the woman, Eve, and to crush the head of the serpent. That is Satan. That is the purpose. That is the plan for His people as it slowly unfolds in the pages of Scripture, story after story, person after person, family by family, leading all the way to the birth of Jesus, to the death of Jesus on the cross, and as we will celebrate one month from now, His resurrection from the dead on Easter Sunday morning. His resurrection from the dead and the victory over death and of hell forever. Amen? That's the story that's given to us in Scripture. That's the story that slowly is unfolding. And let's be honest, there are so many moments as we read that story and the long period of time that it unfolds that you and I can be like, why is this meandering this way and the story meandering that way? We know that the straightest Distance between two points is a straight line. But the story of redemption does not flow that way. It feels meandering for centuries, for millennia. God is at work. He's doing His thing. He's fulfilling His purpose. He's fulfilling His plan. And it's all the story for His people. But as Proverbs 16.9 tells us, that in a man's heart, He determines His course, but it's the Lord who determines the steps. Everything is on God's timetable. Everything is subject to God's will, and that is a good thing. That is a very good thing. So as the people in these stories unfold in Scripture, the author of Hebrews is recounting them for the original audience and for us to remind us that we can and must persevere in the same faith as these people. Faith in the same God, faith in the same promises of God. So this is all pointing towards perseverance, lessons in perseverance. And so in chapter 11, verse 22, the author of Hebrews comes to the final patriarch of Joseph. Now you should know, if you don't already, that the person of Joseph covers the chapters in Genesis from chapter 37 to chapter 50. 
So we could read that this morning and capture the life of Joseph, and we would be here until about 4 p.m. Take forever to comment and read and grasp what is being said about Joseph. And the author of Hebrews gives us that one verse on the person of Joseph. There's a sense in which these Hebrews know the story. They know the story, and there's a sense in which we don't. Some of you do. Some of you have read it. Some of you have watched movies about it. Some of you have even seen cartoons about it. But it's chapters 37 to 50. And so I have to comment, not in great detail, but in some, about Joseph's faith that he persevered in, in his life. Joseph's faith in his life. Simply put, it is a life of drama. Amazing stories, amazing tales recorded for us, true stories of his life and his faith, and every single one of them is a part of telling us that unfolding story of what God is at work doing. He is up to something. And in the life of Joseph, countless lessons for us to see the big picture of God's grace and God's favor when it's poured out on a person. God protects His promise by pouring out grace and favor on the person of Joseph. On the one son out of all the other sons, God chooses, God purposes to show an extraordinary favor and grace to Joseph. And so if you know his story at all, I mean, it's really impossible to do this without you having some knowledge of Joseph. But the story of Joseph begins where he is favored by his father among all of his sons. He is favored. Now, none of us has favorite children. We would not have favorite children. But that father says, favored Joseph. And he made for him a special coat, a coat of many Colors. He knew he was distinguished. He knew he was favored. And he talked about it. He talked about it with his siblings. And that didn't go well. That bred jealousy and contempt and anger. He would tattletale on his brothers and report when they were not good shepherds to his father. His father apparently liked that and appreciated that. And in the story of Joseph, Joseph it got him thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. So even those with God's grace and favor can spend a season in the pit and can live through hardship and through misery, right? It's a good lesson for us to remember, but the sermon can't be on that this morning. But God's grace and favor takes him out of the pit, and he's bought, he's purchased, but he's sold into slavery. He's sold into bondage. So he's delivered from death, But now, God's grace and favor that saved him, God's grace and favor has him serving as a slave in Potiphar's house. But he's a gifted man. He's a handsome man, the Scriptures say. He's he's shown grace and favor in that he's he's an attractive, handsome man. And that seems to work for him in some ways. Until that grace and favor could be a tripping point. And you know that the Scriptures tell the story of Potiphar and Potiphar's wife who pays attention to Joseph. And on one occasion when they're alone, she seeks to tempt him and to seduce him to 
draw him into sexual sin. But Joseph has an amazing grace and favor on his life. He survives this temptation. He flees from this temptation, leaves his cloak behind, and the story goes on to tell us that that woman would lie and say that he had sought to assault her. And now he is in prison. God's grace and favor has rescued him. It's put him in a good place. It's gifted him, and now he's in prison for something he didn't do. God's people can be wrongly accused and can be imprisoned. That's another lesson, one that's here, but not time for our sermon. After being imprisoned, God's grace and favor comes upon Joseph. He has this, no other way to put it, but this ability to interpret dreams. And God uses that gift in his life to elevate him to get him out of the prison and to now put him in this position of grace and favor where because of his giftedness and because of God's divine timing and providence, somehow, some way, this person who was betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, thrown into slavery, put in prison, has now elevated over the course of time. And though a Hebrew becomes essentially the number two person in command in Egypt. It's grace and favor. The hand of God. God at work doing something. That's what's the big picture going on with Joseph. And it's meandering, and it seems like the story's going way around here, but it's always progressing in God's timetable just as He wants it, accomplishing His purposes because the Lord has determined the steps. Now, all of those stories that I just made reference to quickly, none of them is mentioned by the author of Hebrews. None of them, which is amazing because those are the stories you and I think of. But the author of Hebrews Hebrews highlights the end of Joseph's life and, and this strange simplistic-sounding summary of how Joseph ended his life. A further telling of that is in Genesis chapter 50, verses 24 to 26. And I'm going to read these few verses. It's not on the wall. It's not in your bulletin, which means you're going to have to listen to me. Genesis 50, verses 24 to 26. Then Joseph said to his brothers, this is at the end of all those stories, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land He promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's your covenant that is the theme of this and every story of Scripture. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. It's his dying wish. Now, in our culture... 
We're familiar with dying wishes. Um, we, we read in the newspaper when an inmate is sentenced to death and when it's time for their execution, sometimes in the paper it will record what? Their last requested meal. Those are always interesting to see. What do they want to eat? How much they want to eat? What did they choose? Why? It's just interesting. The, the last dying wish of a person who has their breath, the last breath comes from them. Perhaps they, they have one more thing they want to say. They have something that they hope will be true and they want to speak it to those who are attending their death. That's essentially what we have, what we have happening here with Joseph. It's his dying wish. And it sounds so particular until you sit and chew on it for just a moment. And then it makes all the sense in the world as a summary for his life and how it really should be a summary of our own. Two things he says in this dying wish. The first thing it says is that he talks about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. Now, if chronology is not your sort of thing, if timelines and timetables are not your sort of thing. It's very important to understand this. He's not remembering the Exodus. The Exodus has not happened. He's talking about an Exodus he's been waiting for, that God has promised. So he's not talking about something behind him. He's talking about that great redemptive act, the highlight of redemption in the Old Testament, it's been called, that has not yet happened. He and all the patriarchs since Abraham have been waiting for God to answer this promise, and they haven't seen it. And that's what he chooses to talk about. He talks about the Exodus because that is the sum of God's promise. And in his dying breath, you might say, in his last years, his last days, his last moment, he has not forgotten God's promise. His whole life has been centered and focused that we're going somewhere, y'all. And it's that God's going to take us to the promised land. Right? That's where this is all going. So he zeroes in on the Exodus. The second thing that he does, well, I'm going to hit it myself. Why, why, the context of what he's saying, I have two quotes for you if you have a handout. The first thing to understand the context and the weight of what he's saying is to understand something about Egypt. The second thing is to understand something about this Canaan that they long for in the promised land. Eric Watkins says this about Egypt. Egypt was the land of bondage, of cruelty and death. It represented the curse of sin. And for the people of God, it was the land of the darkest hour. The time when it seemed the promise of God was dim and fading away. For 400 years, Israel was shackled as slaves to harsh taskmasters living under the miserable heat of the desert sun. That's the Egypt that Israel knew. And they're waiting for Canaan. They're waiting for God's promise to deliver them. Get us out of this condition of misery. Free us. Deliver us. You've promised you would do it. And we've been waiting for 400 years. And the promise is for a land called Canaan. 
In Canaan, Eric Watkins comments, Canaan was the land of redemption, of freedom, and of life. It was the bountiful land flowing with milk and honey and was the antithesis to Egypt in every way. It was the land Joseph's and his descendants were promised and that he longed for. The promised land that he and his people waited for and lived for by faith. And so you have Joseph at nearly 110 years of age and he has been waiting just like his father just like his grandfather, and just like his great-grandfather Abraham, waiting for Canaan, waiting for the promised land. And now his life at 110 is coming to an end. And did he talk in despair? Did he say, you know what? I guess it's not going to happen. I guess God's promise is just not going to happen because I didn't see it, my dad didn't see it, my grandfather didn't see it, and great-grandfather Abraham didn't see it. So we're changing our hope. We're putting our hope elsewhere. Is that what he does? No. He does something beautiful. And this is the highlight of what the author of Hebrews captures. He gives instructions for the burial of his bones. Now, why is that significant? A couple of things. Number one, he says, put my bones in a coffin, which means they are portable. Don't bury me in the ground, because if you were to bury me in the ground, where would he be buried? He would be buried in Egypt. And Joseph says, I'm no Egyptian. I belong to the God of promise. And these bones will be in the promised land with those of my people who worship the living God. So they embalmed Joseph, put his bones in a portable box and said, nobody bury these bones until we enter the promised land. Then carry those bones with you and put them where they belong, in the land that is the fulfillment of God's promise. So in this way, Joseph is dying well. Joseph is saying, let it be known, the promised land is coming, so don't bury me in Egypt. Which, pause on that for a moment. Think of Egypt. If you know the story of Joseph, chapters 37 to 50, his scrapbook, his family scrapbook, and all the great memories, the highlights of his life, and there were many, it was all in Egypt. His life was lived in Egypt. All these tales, these dramatic stories of God's grace and favor, it was all when he was in Egypt. But he says, I may look like an Egyptian, I may eat the food of Egypt. I may sound like an Egyptian, but I'm no Egyptian. I'm an Israelite. I'm a worshiper of God. So take me with God's people. Let's be ready to move whenever God fulfills that promise and take me with you. And in that way, Joseph has lived by faith and now he dies in faith. He passes a legacy on that his children and their children would know these bones, they're waiting on the promise of God to be fulfilled. We will carry them when it's time to go. Now, wouldn't it be interesting to know how long those bones waited in that coffin? Did you know we, we know? About 300 years. 
That's a long time to wait to pass on the story of, what's this box of bones for? Don't touch it. Whatever you do, don't bury it. We're waiting to take those with us when God fulfills His promise. But that's a long, meandering time to wait, isn't it? Do you suppose that generations wondered, what is God up to? What is God doing? Straightest distance between two points, or the quickest distance between two points is a straight line? What's God doing? He's fulfilling His plan, His purpose for His people. And it's not the way you and I would do it. And so literally, these people have a box of bones for 300 years. And it was Joseph's living testimony, his legacy of faith. Don't touch these bones. Don't bury these bones. They're headed for the promised land. 300 years of waiting. But this is the story of living by faith and dying by faith. Some of you know, and some of you have made your own preparations for death. At some point, everybody, well, not everybody, but at some point, people need to plan carefully. What are they going to do with your bones? It was just a couple of years ago, I got a ding on my phone. My dad and my mom thought it would be, I guess my dad thought it would be funny because he had a sense of humor similar, I guess, to mine. That's where I get it. But he and my mom took a picture in a graveyard. They had, they had secured their cemetery plots and a headstone. I just wanted to know we're ready. It's in place. And, of course, we get in there. We're like, oh, come on, Dad. Then he let us know, oh, by the way, kids, there are three of us, we've purchased a spot for you and for your spouses. Did you know that, honey? There's a place for us to be buried. You know, it seems morbid on the one hand. We don't want to think about death. We don't want to talk about death. But by faith, we understand. It's never about this life only. We've always been called to think heavenward, to think elsewhere. Our roots are not here. Our roots are there. So laugh about it. Joke about it. Buy your cemetery plot. What's going to come of your bones? I thought about death a good bit this week, given the sermon and remembering the cemetery plot had been purchased for me and for my spouse. You know, and I, I don't know the, the tradition in our culture, there are different traditions as it comes to burial. One of them is to be buried in your best clothes, your Sunday best. I'd never thought about that until this week. I don't, I don't know the origin of that, but I wonder if within the church and within Christendom, if a part of that is that you're dressed in your Sunday best because you do believe in a resurrection of the body, which we do as a church, and you're ready for worship. You're dressed in your Sunday best because when the day of resurrection comes, we're all dressed and ready for worship. We're ready for church when we will all worship together in glory. I don't know if that's the origin of why we do that. I really don't, but I kind of like it. We're going to worship all together when our bones are resurrected by the power of the living God and when we spend eternity with Him in our promised land that He says that we're all bound for. That's what Joseph is reminding us of. It seems a little morbid, but it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to live by faith 
to die in faith. That's Joseph's summary. Joseph as a man was a man of grace and favor in extraordinary ways. His life was protected by the living God. He was used as an instrument in the story of redemption that is unfolding in the pages of Scripture. And he is a man of grace and favor. The grace and favor of God. And so are you. God's grace, God's favor continues with His people. So as we read of Joseph, consider Joseph the legacy of his faith. He had reason to praise God for His grace and favor. And so do you. Let's pray and then let's sing. Let's sing a song in which we praise God for His sustaining hand and for the grace and favor He has shown His church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You do work all things together for our good. And Lord, just as Joseph would say in his last days, that what men intended for evil, You intended for good and for the saving of many. And so, Lord, as we consider our own bones and what they are bound for by Your promise... Lord, would you show us how much grace, how much favor you have poured out on your church and your people to protect your purpose and your plan as you deliver your people from their sins. So, Lord, do this in us. Help us to not find all of our possessions in this life, but to realize they truly lie in the next. And we ask this, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.